Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Our daughter came so close to losing her life that day. She said, I saw people being carried out and why would somebody do this? She was very upset and I said, you know what, Jesse, you have seen the worst of humanity today and you're never going to see anything like that again. After Toronto, um, Jesse was still the fun-loving girl she'd always been, but there was a, another level, a depth to her that didn't seem to exist to me before. In 2012, the story of a young woman with big dreams touched the hearts of millions of people around the world. At just 24 years old, she had established herself as a contender in the competitive world of sports journalism. She was bright and vivacious. She was loving and kind. And in her chosen career, she was a force. In June of that year, she traveled to Toronto, Ontario. While there, she narrowly escaped a gunman in a crowded mall. When she returned home, she wrote about gratitude and the blessings of life and family. But tragedy would strike again when a gunman attacked a theater while she attended a movie. Her name now lives on as a beacon of hope for change and a better tomorrow. Tonight, we present the senseless murder of Jessica Gowie, and the lives of many others. And you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. As usual, we want to start off by thanking some listeners who bought us coffees for this week's episode. So a huge thank you to Yannicka and Jeannie. If you would like to donate a coffee for the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. True North True Crime is an independent podcast bringing attention to stories of missing people and victims of violent crime. We are a two-person team building these episodes from start to finish. 
we do take suggestions for episodes and prioritize cases that come directly from family members or close contacts of those cases. If you have a case for us, feel free to reach out at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We are also celebrating an anniversary today. It has been two years since we launched True North True Crime. Two years ago, while we were shut down in our home during the pandemic, we pressed upload on our first episode. We were nervous, we were anxious, and we were also excited. It had been something we had talked about doing for years, and we were finally able to make it happen. One of the most important aspects has been connecting with you all, as well as the families that we work with. So... We just want to, again, thank you for your support and continuing to join us on this journey. We have some exciting goals for the podcast coming up, which includes a subscription option for those of you who want more True North True Crime. We will keep you posted on those new initiatives as they roll out. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. So as mentioned in the intro, tonight we are talking about the case of Jessica Gowie. Jessica was just 24 years old when she was the victim of a mass shooting in Aurora, Colorado in 2012. While this case occurred in the United States, it does have a Canadian connection. We were inspired to cover this case when we recently watched an interview with Jessica's parents in the wake of the tragic Uvalde shooting in Texas. Jessica's parents, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips, started a foundation named Survivors Empowered. Survivors Empowered website states, We are your soft place to land after your life has been forever changed by gun violence. Our mission at Survivors Empowered is to empower survivors of violence to use their stories to create a reduction in violence that we all desire. We understand that gun violence can be a divisive or political issue. It is not our intent to join this debate. Our intent with this episode is to present the facts of Jessica's story. As an additional content warning, this episode deals specifically with gun violence and mass shootings, including the deaths of children. This is an incredibly tragic episode and may be difficult for some listeners. Please take care of yourself if you choose to listen to this episode. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and court documents. So Jessica Gowie was born on November 27, 1987, in the metro Detroit area of Michigan. Her birth parents, Nick and Sandy, did not stay together. When Jessica was about five years old is when Lonnie, her stepfather, came into her life. Jessica also has one brother, one stepbrother, and a stepmother. Jessica and her family moved from Detroit to San Antonio, Texas, when she was still just a child. As a kid, Jessica grew up reading Oh, the Places You'll Go, a Dr. Seuss story that reads, Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly you'll be the best of the best. And it seems that this children's story was prescient with regards to the motivation and drive in which she approached her life and her career. Jessica was clearly a curious, empathetic, and creative kid. She had a love of music, dancing, acting, and writing. In her teens, she entered into kind of an indie phase. She dyed a strip of her hair pink and went to concerts like the Plain White Tees and the All-American Rejects. 
Jessica made friends easily and always stayed connected through texts or Facebook messages. In fact, her parents took away her cell phone in high school after she sent and received over 30,000 texts in one month. It wasn't until the end of high school that Jessica discovered her love for sports. Jessica began dating a guy named Patrick. They had met at an SAT prep class. Throughout their relationship, they attended endless college football games and had season's tickets to the San Antonio Spurs. The young indie artistic girl had become a total sports fanatic. The relationship with the guy eventually ended, but the desire to be in the sports industry stayed. Jessica, almost overnight, decided that sports journalism was going to be her career, and she chased it with all that she had. She transformed herself into Jessica Redfield, an easy name for people to remember due to her red hair. But the name Redfield had significance for Jessica. It was Jessica's maternal grandmother's maiden name. Jessica's mother, Sandy, stated, My mother wanted to be a journalist, but then World War II broke out. Her dreams went away, but my mother was a very talented writer. Jessie certainly inherited that from my mom. She knew that Gowie was not going to be a great name to go into broadcasting with. Eventually, Jessica became an intern at KABB Fox 29, a San Antonio news station. After being there for a little while, one of her colleagues left to go to Denver for other opportunities. This inspired Jessica to do the same. Jessica packed up her life and moved to Denver. While in Denver, Jessica started working and interning. At just 24 years old, she was not just an aspiring sports journalist. She had established herself as an up-and-comer. She covered the Colorado Avalanche for The Fan 104.3, a sports radio station. She did production work for Altitude Sports, a Denver TV network, and wrote about hockey for blogs. She enjoyed working on all sides of the camera, whether it was chasing down a juicy trade story or interviewing a player on the ice after a game, Jessica was shining in her new role. Jessica attended every game during the Colorado Avalanche 2011-2012 season. She would even go to games that her boss didn't ask her to go to. She also wrote about and attended AHL affiliate games. She blogged, she tweeted, she wrote, and she networked. She was even fired from restaurant jobs for taking too many days off to go to games. She lasted four hours as a bartender at one job. Academically, she attended Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she was working on a Bachelor of Arts degree and taking broadcast journalism classes. Soon enough, she was in the locker room wearing her staple red dress and interviewing players. Colorado Avalanche forward Matt Duchesne remembers Jessica and her red dress. He's quoted as saying, A lot of women reporters wear a pantsuit or whatever. I remember she was shivering. I had to laugh a little. But he admired her for being there, being young, being bold, and being knowledgeable. He stated, When I first saw her the first few times, I was impressed. Jessica didn't let her age get in the way of hunting down a story. In the press box, she would approach veteran players and management to make all those important relationships that journalists need. In fact, it was pursuing one of these stories that she would meet her boyfriend. While working on a story about concussions, she interviewed Toronto-area junior hockey player Jay Meloff. The two would hit it off and began dating. Jay had played with the Pickering Panthers, the Peterborough Stars, and the Danbury Whalers in Connecticut. In the summer of 2012, Jessica traveled from Denver to Toronto to visit with Jay. And it was in Toronto that Jessica would witness the Eaton Center shooting. 
On the evening of June 2nd, 2012, Jessica and Jay went to the Eaton Center for some food and shopping. The Eaton Center is a large mall in the downtown core of Toronto. Jessica was on a mission that day to eat some sushi, and in her own words, when she is on that kind of mission, nothing will deter her. They arrived at the mall and went to the food court. Immediately, Jessica spotted Sushi Q, a sushi place near the food court. Instead of walking in and enjoying some sushi, Jessica changed her mind. She instead grabbed a poutine and a burger at the food court. She rushed through her food as she was pretty hungry. She went to a store beside the food court and made a purchase. The time on her receipt was 6.20 p.m. They intended to walk back into the food court to cross to the sport check store on the other side of the food court. But after that purchase, she told Jay she felt funny. She states that it wasn't the kind of funny you feel after spending money you know you shouldn't have spent. It was an almost panicky feeling that left her chest feeling like something was missing, a feeling that was overwhelming enough to lead her to head outside into the rain to get some fresh air instead of continuing back through the food court to the sport check. What Jessica and Jay didn't know was that standing exactly where they were was Christopher Husbands, a 24-year-old man with multiple gun and drug-related charges. At 6.22 p.m., Christopher Husbands was standing in front of Sushi Q with his girlfriend when he noticed a group of five men who had assaulted him with a knife four months earlier in a gang-related issue. According to court documents, the following occurred. Christopher Husbands went to the Eaton Center with his then-girlfriend, Lachelle. Apparently, he wanted to buy himself some rollerblades. His girlfriend was going to pick up some ice skates that she had put on hold for her son the day before. When they arrived at the Eaton Center... Christopher Husbands was carrying a black satchel that was draped across his body. In that satchel, he was carrying a fully loaded, illegally possessed handgun. Both the black satchel and the handgun are clearly visible in the video footage from the Eden Center. After spending approximately one hour in the sport check, Christopher Husbands and Lachelle stopped by the Big Smoke Burger restaurant where Jessica had just been eating to pick up some burgers. They were there for approximately 13 minutes and then made their way north to the Sushi Q restaurant. Christopher Husbands was standing in the corner near the Sushi Q restaurant while Lachelle was purchasing her food. His black satchel was draped across the right side of his body. He was standing with his back to the corner looking out to the food court. Just then, the five men who had previously assaulted Husbands entered the Eaton Center. They made their way down to the food court from the escalator. They walked past Christopher Husbands. No argument was heard by anybody in the food court. Lachelle, who was just a few feet away, heard Christopher yell, What? Another witness saw Husbands standing in the corner, and then he heard him yell, What's up? in a rude manner. After the five men walked past Christopher, he pulled out his gun and fired towards brothers Nixon and Nassan Nirmalendran and the other three men. Husbands fired 14 rounds from his gun. When Husbands stopped firing after emptying his magazine, Ahmed Hassan lay dead on the ground. He was just 24 years of age. Nixon Nirmalendran was critically injured. He was rushed to St. Michael's Hospital. He died nine days later on June 11, 2012 from complications from gunshot wounds. He was 22 years old. 
innocent bystanders were also harmed by the bullets that traveled through people or ricocheted off of floors, walls, and pillars. Connor, a 13-year-old boy, was shot in the head. He was in the food court with his mother and sister. They went to the Eden Center to get something to eat that day before they drove home. After they sat down at a table, they heard gunshots. They got down on the ground. They were hunched under a table, close to a pillar. They tried to move behind a pillar, but as they did, they realized that Connor had been shot. Connor lost consciousness. When EMS arrived shortly afterwards, they provided medical assistance. Connor was put on a stretcher and taken to the Hospital for Sick Children Emergency Department. 13-year-old Connor would survive his injuries, but his life was forever changed. A woman named Tasnuva was also shot. Tasnuva went to the Eaton Center with a friend who was visiting from Boston. As she and her friend were walking through the food court, they heard gunshots. Tasnuva was shot in her right leg. Nicholas Kay was shot in his upper thigh. Nicholas Kay went to the Eaton Center with a friend to enjoy the day and do some window shopping. As they were walking through the food court, Nicholas heard gunshots and saw someone being shot. They then turned and ran, but Nicholas was shot in the right leg. A bullet also hit Hannah Kay. Hannah Kay, along with her several friends, attended the food court, and while waiting in line, she heard gunshots. She went to the ground after the shot started, and while on the ground, Hannah felt something really hot hit her right little finger. Her finger was cut and bleeding. A bullet grazed another person's stomach. Chin C went to the Eaton Center to shop, and then she decided to purchase a meal. She was in the process of paying the cashier for her meal when she suddenly heard gunshots. At this point, she felt a burning pain in the left side of her abdomen. Kessia F., who was pregnant at the time, was trampled by the panicked crowd as she tried to exit the food court up the south escalator. Kessia went to the Eaton Center with her 8-year-old son and 17-year-old niece. Kessia was 7 months pregnant at the time. Kessia injured her wrist, injured her shoulder, pulled leg muscles, and began to feel contractions. Panic hit the Eaton Center and people began fleeing and trying to find exits. After hearing gunshots, hundreds of people ran for their lives. The video footage shows people scrambling to exit the food court, leaving behind their recent purchases as well as their hot meals and baby carriages. Jessica was outside of the mall at this point. Keep in mind Jessica's purchase was at 6.20 and according to court documents, the shooting started at 6.22, in the exact place she just was. Jessica blogged about what she saw outside the mall that evening in Toronto. I walked around outside the mall. People started funneling out every exit. When I got back to the front, I saw a police car, an ambulance, and a fire truck. I initially thought that maybe the street performer that was drumming there earlier had a heart attack or something, but more and more police officers, ambulance, and fire trucks started showing up. Something terrible has happened. I overheard a panicked guy say, there was a shooting in the food court. I thought, there's no way. I was just down there. I asked him what happened. He said, some guy just opened fire, shot about eight shots. It sounded like balloons popping. The guy is still on the loose. I'm not sure what made me stick around at this point instead of running as far away from the mall as possible. Shock, curiosity, human nature, who knows. Standing there in the midst of chaos all around us, police started yelling to get back and make room. I saw a young shirtless boy writhing on a stretcher with his face and head covered by the EMS as they rushed him by us to get him into an ambulance. 
the moment was surprisingly calm. The EMTs helping the boy weren't yelling orders and no one was screaming like a nighttime medical drama. That's when it really hit me. I felt nauseous. Who would go into a mall full of thousands of innocent people and open fire? Is this really the world we live in? People started yelling again, get back now. Another stretcher came rushing out of the mall. I saw a man on a stretcher, the blanket underneath him spotted with blood. Multiple gunshot holes in his chest, side, and neck were visible. It's not like in the movies when you see someone shot and they're bleeding continuously from the wound. There was no blood flowing from the wounds. I could only see the holes. Numerous gaping holes as if his skin was putty and someone stuck their finger in it. Except these wounds were caused by bullets. Bullets shot out of hatred. His dark skin on his torso was tinted red with what I assumed was his own blood. He was rushed into the ambulance and taken away. More people joined the crowd at the scene and asked what happened. There was a shooting in the food court, kept being whispered through the crowd like a game of telephone. I was standing near a security guard when I heard him say over his walkie-talkie, one fatality. At this point, I was convinced I was going to throw up. I'm not an EMT or a police officer. I'm not trained to handle crime and murder. Gun crimes are fairly common where I grew up in Texas, but I never imagined I'd experience a violent crime firsthand. I'm on vacation and wanted to eat and go shopping. Everyone else at the mall probably wanted the same thing. I doubt anyone left that day for the mall imagined they'd witness a shooting. This blog post was shared widely through media. The post can be found on Jessica's blog, jessicaredfield.wordpress.com. The post is dated June 5th, 2012, entitled Late Night Thoughts on the Eaton Center Shooting. It ends with the following important statements. I was shown how fragile life was on Saturday. I saw the terror on bystanders' faces. I saw the victims of a senseless crime. I saw lives change. I was reminded that we don't know when or where our time on earth will end, when or where we will breathe our last breath. For one man, it was in the middle of a busy food court on a Saturday evening. I say all the time that every moment we have to live, our life is a blessing. So often I have found myself taking it for granted. Every hug from a family member, every laugh we share with a friend, even the times of solitude are all blessings. Every second of every day is a gift. She goes on to say, After Saturday evening, I know I truly understand how blessed I am for each second I am given. I feel like I'm overreacting about what I experienced, but I can't help but be thankful for whatever caused me to make choices that I made that day. My mind keeps on replaying what I saw in my head. I hope the victims make a full recovery. I wish I could shake this odd feeling from my chest, the feeling that's reminding me how blessed I am. The same feeling that made me leave the Eaton Center, the feeling that may have potentially saved my life. After her trip to Toronto, Jessica returned home to Denver. She had luckily survived a shooting in Canada, but unfortunately, tragedy would follow her back to Colorado. We're now going to take a quick break. Thanks for supporting our podcast by giving our sponsors a listen and checking out the ones that interest you.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we are back. So before the break, we spoke about Jessica Gowie, a tenacious sports journalist who is gaining traction in a competitive industry. On a trip to Toronto, she narrowly escaped being a victim at the Eaton Centre shooting on June 2nd, 2012. Jessica stayed in Toronto a week or so longer and did touristy type stuff in the wake of the shooting. She went to Niagara Falls and other destinations with her boyfriend, Jay. She returned to Denver on June 15th. During this time, her Twitter feed is filled with NHL trade stories and life commentary. It also appears that she adopted a dog. Meanwhile, Jay Meloff, her boyfriend, had planned to try out for the Denver Cutthroats, a minor league hockey team. Getting on that team would bring the couple closer together after a year of dating. They were still doing long distance at this time as Jay was still living in Toronto. On July 19th, 2012, Jessica was excited to see the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises, the new and highly anticipated third installment of the Batman trilogy. The movie showing was almost seven weeks to the day from the Eaton Center shooting. At 5.27pm, she tweeted, Never thought I'd have to coerce a guy into seeing the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises with me. Then at 5.32pm, she posted that a friend had decided to go with her. Then, at 10.22 p.m., she tweeted, Of course we are seeing the Dark Knight. Red-headed Texan spitfire. People should never argue with me. Maybe I should get in on those NHL talks. She was referring to the potential NHL strike in 2012. So Jessica and her friend Brent made their way to the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Brent, who was 27 at the time, was visiting from Texas. When they arrived, Jessica bought herself some popcorn, and the two took their seats in the center or middle area of the theater. Just before midnight, Sandy, Jessica's mom, woke up in her home in Texas. She texted Jessica right away to ask what she was up to. Jessica replied that she was at the theater seeing the new Batman movie with her friend Brent. She texted, Go to bed, Mom. Get some sleep. I can't wait for you to come next week. I need my mama. Sandy texted back, I need my baby girl. Jay, her boyfriend, who was in Toronto at the time, also spoke with Jessica before the movie started. She had wished him good night over the phone minutes before entering the theater. She said for him to sleep well. She knew it was late where he was. Jay, who lives in Markham, states, That was the last thing we ever got to say to each other. Jessica and Brent watched the previews while another moviegoer in their row, who was celebrating his 27th birthday, stood up and struck a Superman pose. Everyone who saw this apparently laughed. 
the moviegoers were in good spirits. There were 400 people in the theater that night for the movie, including a 24-year-old man named James Holmes. Earlier that day, James Holmes had reportedly called a crisis hotline, but the call was disconnected after just nine seconds. What no one in the theater knew that night was that James Holmes had been planning every detail of that night for months. He had purchased weapons and armor. He had drawn maps of the theater. He knew every door. He even dyed his hair reddish-orange because he thought that color emanated bravery. It's been misreported that he was inspired to dye his hair because of the Joker character in the Batman franchise. James Holmes sat himself in the front row of the cinema. About 20 minutes into the show, Holmes made his way out a side exit beside the movie screen. The door led out to a rarely used parking lot at the back of the theater. Before heading out into the parking lot, he propped the door slightly open with a plastic tablecloth holder. Holmes went to his car, which he had parked close to the door. Holmes got dressed in an all-black tactical outfit that consisted of a black gas mask, a load-bearing vest, a ballistic helmet, bullet-resistant leggings, a bullet-resistant throat protector, a groin protector, and tactical gloves. He armed himself with a 12-gauge Remington 870 Express tactical shotgun, a Smith & Wesson M&P 15 semi-automatic rifle with a 100-round drum magazine, a 40 caliber Glock 22 Gen 4 handgun, and several smoke canisters. James put on some headphones under his helmet and turned up some loud techno music so that he could not hear what he was about to do. He walked back into the theater and stood at the door for a moment at approximately 12.30 a.m. on July 20th, 2012. People had shown up to the premiere in costume, so when the dark figure of James Holmes appeared at the exit door, theater attendees thought it was a joke or a PR stunt. Holmes tossed a smoke grenade into the full theater. He then fired his shotgun at the ceiling and then into the crowd. He first targeted those at the back of the theater and in the aisles. He switched to the Smith & Wesson M&P 15 semi-automatic rifle with a 100-round drum magazine until eventually it jammed. Once the rifle malfunctioned, he used the Glock 22 handgun to continue the attack. Bullets traveled through walls, striking people in the neighboring Theater 8. Overall, Holmes fired 76 shots in the theater, six from the shotgun, 65 from the semi-automatic rifle that jammed, and five from the Glock 22 handgun. At 12.39 a.m., the first emergency call of hundreds was made and police responded within minutes. Local hospitals were alerted to a mass casualty incident. As stated, Jessica and her friend Brent were seated in the middle of the theater, Jessica screamed in between shots for someone to call 911. In the rampage, she was shot six times by the semi-automatic rifle. The first shot was above her right knee. Brent was shot twice with one bullet that traveled through his lower back and into his shoulder, narrowly missing vital organs. Brent applied pressure to Jessica's leg before looking up and seeing what appeared to be an entry wound in her head. She was unresponsive. Brent, along with hundreds of others, tried to escape the theater. After he got outside, Brent phoned Sandy, Jessica's mother, who had just been texting with her, not even a half hour earlier. 
Sandy's phone rang. She answered and could hear voices screaming in the background. Brent told her that there had been a shooting and that he had been shot. Sandy asked about her daughter, and Brent said, I'm sorry. I tried. Two police officers found Jessica in the theater. They put her into the back of a police cruiser and rushed her to the hospital. According to the police scanner, at 12.45 a.m., a suspect was spotted standing in the parking lot wearing a gas mask. At 12.50 a.m., police apprehended James Holmes without incident as he stood beside his car. Police would later find his apartment filled with explosive devices and trip wires set to create more carnage. On the morning of July 20th, 2021, after she arrived at the hospital, Jessica Gowie was pronounced dead at just 24 years old. Overall, 12 people lost their lives that night in Aurora, Colorado, including 6-year-old Veronica Moser-Sullivan, who was there with her pregnant mother. Her mother, Ashley, was left paralyzed, and the attack caused her to lose her baby. An additional 70 were injured. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Jordan, Jessica's brother, took to his blog to confirm what had happened. He wrote, At approximately 2.15, I received a hysterical and almost unintelligible phone call from my mother stating that my sister, Jessica Gowie, had been shot while attending the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises in Denver, Colorado. I was able to contact the man who was with my sister, mutual friend, Brent, who stated that they were in the theater when an incendiary device was fired into the crowd and that shots rang out immediately afterwards. Brent further stated that he took two rounds and that my sister took one round followed by an additional round, which appeared to strike her in the head. Jessica and Brent were seated in the middle portion of the theater when the device was thrown into the theater that produced a hissing sound. The theater began to fill with smoke, which is when patrons began to move from their seats. At the time, shots were fired. Brent then heard Jessica scream and noticed that she was struck by a round in her leg. Brent began holding pressure on the wound and attempted to calm Jessica. While still administering first aid, Brent noticed that Jessica was no longer screaming. Brent's actions are nothing less than heroic. In the days after Jessica's death, there was an outpouring of grief and support from those who knew her in the sports entertainment industry. Journalists and producers took to social media to praise Jessica's work ethic, professionalism, and joy for life. One programming director wrote, She became one of my best friends. She reminded me of family. Some people miss out on what are great opportunities in their life. Hers is the worst of all. To have someone cut it short before she could really blossom, it hurts. She also worked at Denver-based You Can Play, an organization that supports LGBTQ plus athletes founded by Patrick Burke, son of Toronto Maple Leafs general manager Brian Burke. Jessica interned for us for a few months. She was a wonderful, bright, talented woman. Jesse Spector, an NHL journalist, states that Jessica possessed the kind of enthusiasm and passion for sports and journalism that were needed for success. At the same time, a deep, dark grief settled over the United States of America. James Holmes eventually went on trial for his heinous act. Holmes was charged with 165 crimes. ATF agent Steve Beggs gave the prosecution a timeline that showed Holmes started his buying spree on May 10th, 2012 with online purchases of tear gas grenades. From then until July 14th, 
Beggs testified that Holmes legally bought nearly 6,300 rounds of ammunition, two Glock 40 caliber pistols, the 223 caliber semi-automatic rifle, a 12-gauge shotgun, ballistic protection clothing, beam laser lights, bomb-making material, and handcuffs. Some of the purchases he made were online, and some of them were made in person. The three gun stores that he purchased weapons at offered their condolences to the families, but indicated that they had followed all state laws, including background checks, before selling Holmes guns. James Holmes was found guilty on 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder, one count of possessing illegal explosives with a sentence enhancement of a crime of violence. Holmes was sentenced to 12 life imprisonment sentences without parole and a maximum of 3,318 additional years on attempted murder and a maximum of 3,318 additional years on attempted murder and explosives possession convictions. According to an article on Salon.com, in 2014, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips, Jessica's parents, sued the retailers which sold Holmes ammunition and body armor in spite of laws shielding them from liability. The lawsuit argued that Lucky Gunner, which sold Holmes more than 4,000 rounds of ammunition, the Sportsman Guide, which sold him a 100-round magazine and 700 rounds, BTP Arms, which provided the tear gas canisters used in the attack and bulletproof body armor, negligently sold Holmes' weapons used in the attack online without assessing his state of mind. The lawsuit did not seek any monetary damages, but rather asked a court to order the retailers to change the allegedly negligent and dangerous business practices which allowed Holmes to purchase his weapons. Sandy Phillips later told Time, that the case was dismissed before it was ever heard. The retailers asked a judge to order that Sandy and Lonnie pay the more than $200,000 in attorney fees incurred as a result of the lawsuit. According to Sandy and Lonnie, the family declared bankruptcy after they were ordered to pay more than $200,000 by the judge. But this hasn't stopped Sandy and Lonnie from advocating for change. They started their foundation, Survivors Empowered, in 2012, this nonprofit was originally called Jesse's Message. It is a national organization created by survivors, for survivors, and empowering survivors. Lonnie and Sandy travel from mass shooting to mass shooting in the United States. They provide support and referrals for services for survivors of violence and connect them to a support network of other survivors in the area. They educate people on how to tell their stories in a compelling way to speak to the issues of violence in their communities. According to the website, they have a rapid response team made up of veteran survivors of violence that have walked the walk. After a mass casualty event, local governments and law enforcement are overwhelmed. Victims are usually in shock or fighting for their lives. No one understands what victims need better than those who have gone through it themselves. In the last month, we have seen Sandy and Lonnie in Buffalo, New York, and now Uvalde, Texas. They have appeared in many news programs over the last decade. They show up to help when others do not know what to do. They didn't ask for this, but this is what they do. They rely almost entirely on donations to fund their efforts. Please consider donating to them or purchasing some merchandise. 
We will link their website in our show notes. Here's an interview with Lonnie and Sandy as they stood outside of Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas in May 2022. Nobody should know this pain. Nobody should know the pain of having a loved one taken by gun violence. And we still have bits of anger, a bit yeah. of fury. Life is never the same, but you do find purpose and you do find joy. It's exactly the same. When you lose a child, you lose your future. And when you lose your future, you lose hope. So instilling hope in them again and letting them know there is a path towards joy, different kind of joy, but it's there and we'll help you find it. We, we own a gun, you know. Uh, I, we're not against gun ownership. We're against owning these types of guns because they are the favorite of mass shooters. Um, but we're, we are in favor of regulated guns. So this is a Canadian podcast that primarily deals with Canadian cases. And you may be wondering what happened to Christopher Husbands, the man who brought an illegally carried firearm into the Eaton Centre in June of 2012 and began shooting into a crowd. Well, it was learned that less than five weeks before Christopher Husbands opened fire at the Eaton Centre, he was facing nine charges of possessing illegal weapons. Those charges were withdrawn and husbands walked free. As for his trial for the Eden Center shooting, well, originally he was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder in the fatal shooting of Ahmad Hassan and Nixon Nirmalendran. He was also found guilty of five counts of aggravated assault and one count of criminal negligence causing bodily harm. He was originally sentenced to life in prison with at least 30 years before he could apply for parole. However, that conviction was set aside due to what the Ontario Court of Appeal determined was improper jury selection, and he was granted a new trial. In November of 2019, seven years after his crimes, he was convicted in his second trial. This time, the second-degree murder charges didn't stick. Instead, he was convicted on two counts of manslaughter. Justice Brian O'Mara handed husbands concurrent life sentences on those charges with his parole eligibility set at seven years. Husbands smiled as he heard his new sentence. This meant that because of the six years that he had already served in prison during his appeals and trials, that Christopher Husbands could apply for early parole in just 16 months after his 2019 trial. Christopher Husbands murdered two people, injured and terrified many more with an illegally carried firearm. So far, there is no indication that he has applied for his first opportunity for parole. There's also no indication that he would receive parole if he applied for it. But still, he is now eligible for parole on this conviction. Since Jessica's death in 2012, there have been foundations and scholarships created in her name, including... The Jessica Redfield Gowie Scholarship Fund, based in San Antonio, Texas, will fund scholarships to support young women to study sports journalism. In fall of 2012, Metropolitan State University of Denver bestowed an honorary Bachelor of Arts degree to Jessica. Sandy Phillips, her mother, accepted the degree on behalf of Jessica, saying, Today we actually shed tears of joy instead of tears of sorrow. Sandy also stated that this was one of her dreams that she was so close to achieving and not fulfilled. 
adding that if Jessica was alive to receive the honorary degree, she would have jokingly said, wow, I didn't even have to study to get this. In the years after her death, Jessica's ashes have been spread in countries all over the world. Whenever friends or family take a trip, they ask Sandy for some ashes to take with them. The victims of the Aurora shooting are A.J. Boyk. A.J. had just graduated from Gateway High School where he played baseball. Jonathan Blunk, a father of two and a member of the military who served three tours in the Persian Gulf and the North Arabian Sea. He died covering his girlfriend with his body. Jesse Childress, 29 years old, was a staff sergeant at the Buckley Air Force Base and worked as a cyber systems operator who loved comics and superhero movies. Gordon Cowden, he loved his life and his family. He went to the midnight movie premiere with his two teenage children who escaped unharmed. John Larimer was a Navy sailor based at Buckley Air Force Base where he was a cryptologic technician. He was known for his curiosity and attention to detail. Michaela Medic. Michaela was 23 and was saving money for a trip to India. She was working at Subway and attended Aurora Community College. Michaela loved Hello Kitty, Hot Pink, and Beanie Babies. Matt McQuinn died trying to protect his girlfriend. As the gunman opened fire, McQuinn dove on top of Samantha Yowler. McQuinn, a 27-year-old Ohio native, had moved to Colorado just a few months earlier. Jessica Gowie was a journalist and blogger who cared deeply for other people. Veronica Moser Sullivan, six years old, went to see the Batman movie with her mother. She was a vibrant little girl who was just bragging about learning how to swim that week. Alex Sullivan, who struck the Superman pose making folks laugh, was at the midnight showing as part of his birthday celebration. His family called him their real-life superhero. Alex was smart and funny and, above all, loved dearly by his friends and family. Alex Tevis was 24 years old and originally from Arizona, but was living in the Denver area after graduating from the University of Denver. Alex's father stated that his son had blocked his girlfriend from a bullet when Alex was shot and killed. His father said that Alex would do anything to save his girlfriend. Rebecca Ann Wingo, 32 years old, was a devoted mother who always sat on the front row at church. She was friendly with everyone and always seemed to be in a good mood. Before we end this episode, we want to take a moment to revisit the words that Jessica expressed in her blog post after the Eaton Center shooting in 2012. Quote, I say all the time that every moment we have to live our life is a blessing. So often I have found myself taking it for granted. Every hug from a family member, every laugh we share with friends, even the times of solitude are all blessings. Every second of every day is a gift. After Saturday evening, I know I truly understand how blessed I am for every second I am given. As always, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. Our producers on the podcast are Yannicka, Sherry, Alexa, Urs, Donna, Dennis, Cheryl, Shelley, Kathleen, Mandy, Alicia, L.A., Vicky, Barbara, Colleen, Blair, Melanie, Alberta, Carolyn, Barbara, Shandy, Kelly, Jimmy, Shandy, Jessa, Lisa Marie, Thomas, Maureen, Lorena, Colleen B., Susan, Kennedy, 
and Alex and Andrea. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, all. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.